0: Today we can get a glimpse into the current world of white supremacy through the lens of Glenna Gordon's striking photography. And as we just heard, white women helped maintain slavery as an institution. But what about the role of white women in between those two eras? As the United States moved from Jim Crow to the civil rights movement, what were white women doing and how did they respond to changes in society?
1: They're sort of like the church ladies of white supremacist politics, you know, the people that are doing all the groundwork, maybe not the sort of public speaking or uh, being lifted up as the spokesman, but doing the work that makes that possible.
0: Historian Elizabeth Gillespie McRae has researched how white women were behind a lot of the pushback against racial equality from the 1920s to the 1970s. She says when we think about people promoting white supremacy, we often focus on the role of men in political power. But while men may have written the rules for upholding racial segregation, white women molded those rules into a reality.
1: I didn't start out really looking for white women. I started out looking for how racial segregation was upheld and reproduced and shaped and reshaped in the American South. And what I found everywhere I looked was women working on this grassroots level, you know, being the sort of grassroots workers for social welfare policy and as teachers reporting to their superintendents or principals that they thought there was a black child who was passing in their classrooms or work into shape the history that was told in public school textbooks. A lot of
0: women's work defending segregation orbited around the Brown v. Board of Education ruling in 1954. But McRae says pushback against school integration is only one piece of white supremacy's puzzle during this time period. Another big piece can be found when women achieved the right to vote in 1920.
1: When women were talking and pushing for the right to vote. In the South, some suffragists kept assuring the broader public and particularly the male elected officials that their votes would uphold racial segregation, not destabilize it. It could be strategy, right? Like at first I was like, oh, wow, is this just a strategy and they're going to give up on this once they get the right to vote? And I think it's probably both, right? For some, it was a strategy that the outcome was worth sacrificing principled political rhetoric on the front end. But with that sort of promise that they would uphold racial segregation, I began to look at how they did it. And I think we imagine, right, that the quest for more rights and the people pushing for sort of equal voting rights imagine a landscape of equal voting rights for all, but many did not. Now, one of the ways in which
0: these grassroots white women were enforcing white supremacy is through policing social welfare institutions. And you talk about the Racial Integrity Act, which was implemented in Virginia in the 1920s. So tell us a little bit more about the Racial Integrity Act and how that is an example of these white women bolstering white supremacy.
1: So the legislation, which was passed in 1924, comes out of a both a national and kind of a state level effort. The folks pushing the racial integrity act believe in eugenics. They believe in this sort of false race science. And um, they're also fearful that more and more with the hardening of racial segregation, that more and more people are passing from black to white or from Indian to white. They're particularly interested in shoring up and hardening the line between black and white. So in Virginia, in order for it to work, people on the ground have to kind of report on their neighbors and friends and schoolchildren and alert people to passing. And so the work in order to enforce the Racial Integrity Act, it falls on midwives who deliver most of the babies at this time on school teachers, on registrars who were doing marriage and birth certificates. And so it is really women that become the vanguard of the Racial Integrity Act. It's nurses writing to the state saying, oh, I think we admitted this person to the hospital that is black, but not white. And The law would have sat there without these sort of local enforcers. And these local enforcers were women, and they were women really familiar with the communities. I mean, they had sort of local authority as teachers and as social welfare workers.
0: Wow. So these white women doing really the legwork and being the eyes and the ears. I mean, it's a reminder, right, that passing a law is one thing, implementation is another. And your work's pointing out how these white women are really... (laughs) at the root of that.
1: Right. And they weren't screaming like racist epitaphs, right? Like their work was quiet and sort of sustained. And they were in their mind, they were following the law. I don't know whether they were committed to white supremacy or not, but it doesn't matter because their work shored up the system for a long time. Even in the 1980s, people were having babies in hospitals in Lynchburg. And the hospital officials would look at their last name and declare their racial identity, even if the mother disputed it. Now, another way that
0: these white Southern women are really enforcing white supremacy is through education. So how are these women using public education education? as a kind of platform for white supremacy?
1: It's a place that women, even before the vote, had carried some sort of public authority, right? Schools were thought to be kind of an extension of the home, and maybe not in policy, but in practice, um, public education was dominated at the sort of ground level by women. Um, In the interwar period, so between 1920 and World War II, white women had really won the battle in terms of what was in um, the nation's textbooks. I mean, it was a very white South friendly narrative, a narrative of sort of reconciliation around imperialism or a narrative that said Reconstruction was corrupt and it was corrupted by African-Americans and Greedy Yankees who came down to the South. And I mean, that was the story told. So that the national narrative was kind of dominated by this white Confederate narrative. But these sort of female producers of white supremacist thought kept telling white women that they had to work to make sure that their schools kept up those stories. And it was particularly important as. Former Confederates and people who had memories of the Civil War and Reconstruction and the birth of Jim Crow died out, that women needed to be really vigilant about what was being taught in their schools.
0: So tell us about an essay contest that students were encouraged to write.
1: Well, in the interwar period, they were often about sort of um, celebrating the Confederacy. So why was the Confederacy right to secede? But after World War II, as the allies in sort of shoring up racial segregation begin to defect, the Democratic Party and the Supreme Court and the United Nations is offering a kind of multicultural education curriculum, segregationist women begin to sort of retool these essay contests. So the White Citizens' Councils, for example, in Mississippi, will have essay contests even as late as 1959 and 1960 about why segregation is best for both races And the prize for one girl and one boy from Mississippi is $500, which at that point would have paid for four years of a college education at the University of Mississippi. So we're not talking about, you know, chump change for this, (laughs) right? For an essay, it's not like $25. It's $500. And thousands of students wrote these essays. So there's 16 in 1959. (laughs) they're still around. <laughs> like that was their sort of education. But that's a way that even after the Brown decision that folks continued to cultivate a curriculum in kind of a segregationist education so that when the civil rights act and voting rights act passed, you had a new group, a young group of white southerners and white Americans who had been trained and taught this narrative that was really counter to the civil rights movement. Now,
0: it strikes me some of what you're talking about in all of these different ways in which these white Southern women are having power to influence things is partly the morality of motherhood power. Is that part of what they're banking on here?
1: It is part, and I think the female political strategists of segregation try all sorts of different languages. They employ motherhood. Like, if you're going to be a good mother, you need to uphold racial segregation. They experiment with, like, languages of sort of citizenship. They'll try out colorblind rhetoric. But motherhood is really central in the way, if we follow sort of how they craft ideas of motherhood, it bleeds over later into a language of family values that they can sort of draw the line between what it means to be a good white mother. And so... Being a good white mother meant in many ways that you taught the lessons of racial segregation and that the larger society could recognize what a good mother you were by the racial distance that your children kept. But the language of motherhood meant that you could cross class lines, right? If racial distance was the mark of being a good white mother, then poor white women in the architecture of segregation, could uphold that, right? So the women in New Orleans, like in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, which was a working-class white neighborhood in the 1950s and 60s, they could be good white mothers because they could ensure that their kids went to segregated schools, right, in a way that economically, in an integrated world, they would not be able to move to the suburbs and make sure that their kids went to virtually all-white schools, But in a system of legalized segregation, they could be good white mothers.
0: Now, I'm going to make a comparison that's going to sound wacky. But um, in in the late 18th century, when people were talking about the French Revolution, some people were very worried about women. Because they said that women could sneak into places and crawl between the lines and do things that men couldn't do precisely because they weren't sort of full-fledged citizens. And it sounds kind of like that's part of what you're describing here is that it's, it's their somewhat compromised status that actually gives them a kind of power. Yes.
1: White women have this precarious position in a sort of system of white supremacy because their bodies are particularly important. <laughs> By crossing the racial line in terms of marriage and sex, they can destroy the color line. And so it's really important that white women are policed, too. And a lot of the work the most active female segregationists do is about policing white women, too, to making sure that they don't do that. But I think you're right in the way that um, the core women that I write about believe that they're more powerful because they're not seeking the rewards of the party. So they can be ideologically pure, because they're not going to lose a committee assignment. They, early on, begin to talk about how Democratic men, big D, Democratic men in the South, are going to follow the party because they can't adhere to their principles in the way white women can. And so it is up to white women. If they break from Roosevelt's politics, they're not going to be punished. I mean, because they don't have these sort of committee assignments or positions in the party. And so it is their compromise position that allows them to think that they are the, sort of the true believers and the gatekeepers for racial segregation.
0: I'm curious to hear how you think that, I guess the politics, but more important than that, the rhetoric of these white women segregationalists has evolved into the early 21st century. So are there places where you really see
1: Echoes of this kind of activism in today's culture. So we're going to back up just a second. If you were a real committed segregationist and advocate for white supremacist politics as a woman, you find yourself moving right out of the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and then into the far right. Like the most committed. That's sort of their trajectory. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, President Nixon pushes Congress to reconsider the Genocide Convention, which was a U.N. convention that came out of World War II, right, condemning genocide. And the U.S. had never ratified that. And in part, they hadn't ratified it because of the work of white women. And in the late 1960s and 70s, see women and men of the far right, writing their senators saying, do not ratify the Genocide Convention. And their reason is they believe it would limit the power of the police and that the police would be prosecuted for genocide for their treatment of the Black Panther Party. In some ways, I see this sort of segregationist rhetoric and the sort of far-right version of that as sort of feeding the conversation we have today about police brutality and Black Lives Matter. And so I think the other sort of continuation is that and after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, and I think the way the public discussion is about white supremacist politics today, I think we're continuing to ignore the work what women do on the grassroots level.
0: Elizabeth Gillespie-McRae is an associate professor of history at Western Carolina University. She's also the author of the book, Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy.
2: Hey, Nathan, Joanne. Those are some terrific interviews. Uh, and I came away with one question, which is, if women are such a crucial part of the story, uh, how come in the history of things we're only beginning to just talk about them now?
0: Well, I, I think part of the answer to that question is is tied up with what I felt was a big irony about all of the content of these interviews, which is that for so long, historians, and I think just generally People have dismissed women's work as being Mm -hmm. unimportant or secondary or, you know, sort of just working in the background to keep things going. And part of that has been dismissing all of the work and all of the effort and all of the impact that all of the interviews in this show are really showing today.
3: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. If you, if you think about the the cycle of how groups get incorporated into national conversations about history, I think it was really necessary and important in the late 60s and early 70s to think about how, you know, feminism and women's presence in the history really gets integrated into the big stories that we tell. And you have to obviously think about suffrage and you think about the women's rights movements. But then to, you know, Joanne's point, you know, if you take the capacious definition of what work, that also means, you know, working sometimes at history's underside. I think there's there's a, a very important progression that we're seeing where the, com- the full completeness of women's roles on a variety of different good versus evil axes, I think, is now finally getting rounded out all the way.
2: So, do we run a risk here of forgetting that even these female plantation owners, even women um, creating myths about Confederate society and how wonderful slavery was, that they too were oppressed at the very time (laughs) that they were oppressing?
3: I mean, I I think we can, you know, very safely talk about how women's um, activities were circumscribed by patriarchy, even as they're engaging in in white supremacist work. You, you look at the you know United Daughters of the Confederacy, for example, and you know, they are engaged in, you know, basically helping to advance a, a very particular vision of the lost cause and of, and of the happy plantation, but relegated to the domestic sphere. I mean, you know, you're talking about an organization that had you know some 45,000 members shortly after the turn of the century, and what they're basically, you know doing with that woman power in large measure is you know, engaging in, you know, very um, clear moments of memory or or refashioning the plantation memory, building a a mammy or proposing to anyway, Mammy Monument on the Washington Mall. That was one of their big projects. Um, And that is still, you know, a a very small way of contributing to what was the larger workings of Southern society at that time. In other words, they they were circumscribed to the parlors and in ways that, you know, were going to make sure that white men were still the dominant representatives of the political power of the former Confederacy.
2: I'm going to pivot to the post-World War II period uh, because growing up in Carl Gables, Florida in the 1960s, I was taught in my civics class about the War of Northern Aggression. Seriously? And, and seriously. <laughs> really? Yep. In and, Miami. Wow. In, in Miami. Wow. And I was taught that by uh, – won't mention his name, but a male <laughs> teacher – What I never realized until I listened to earlier parts of the show was that it was probably women who inserted that in our textbooks. Mm. I never really Mm. thought about how crucial women were to maintaining that lost cause, war of northern aggression, whole take on the Civil War.
0: And, you know, that strikes me as – pretty important. And that's, you know, political power is one kind of power. Cultural power is another kind of power. And it's a power that can be wielded, I think, more easily and seemingly more safely by people who lack a certain degree of political power.
2: Exactly. Those nurses, those recording clerks, those social workers who were literally implementing the white supremacist thoughts right. reflected mm-hmm. in legislation. That, you know, to me, as, as somebody who studies bureaucracy, that's a pretty potent form of power and a pretty enduring one. I mean, one of the things that, that
3: I like about exploring this question about, you know, white women inside the workings of white supremacy is very similar to what I find to be fruitful about talking through exploitation being done by African-American business people or, you Mm -hmm. know, landlords in particular and some of the stuff I've, I've written about in the past, which is to say that the mere presence of a black business person does not remove the possibility that a a tenant can be exploited or an employee can be taken advantage of right and and the mere presence of a woman worker within an organization or even an organization run run by women the the mere fact of that women's presence or labor does not necessarily mean that it's a place of progressive politics and i think we we fall oftentimes into the trap of simply think, thinking that the presence of women or people of color within an organization or within mm. a, an institution therefore means that that institution will behave in the interest of those people. So, to me, feel very heartened that it raises, at least for us, a, a way of asking questions slightly differently, which is to say, you know, what's the aim of the organizations and how can we look at the – subjects or the targets of those different collective bodies as being the more important place to examine whether or not that is a a useful political movement or institution or what have you.
0: I don't know what to do with this, but I'm going to say it anyway and just sort of see where it goes. Um, Mm. Listening to the interviews and thinking about the topic of this show, speaking as a white woman, some part of me feels guilt And I I suppose you could say some of that's attached to privilege, but it isn't just attached Mm. to privilege. It's looking at these people and knowing that I am one of these people and, and feeling some degree of shame and not quite, you know, and not quite knowing what to do with that feeling and not quite feeling that it's entirely logical, but it's a very strong feeling.
3: Right. I, I would say that you are not one of these people and and I, and I would say <laughs> thank <laughs> and you <Nathan>. would, <laughs> and and, and, I, and I would say it in the same way that you know I would not feel comfortable you know if somebody drew a parallel between me and you know Booker T Washington kind of figure right which which is to say that the context that we're living in is different that the that the way that we are concerned about these questions are you know decidedly different than our historical predecessors and that there might, in fact, be different ways that we can identify with past historical subjects than our racial identity. You know, for the same reason that, you know, you can kind of dress up as who you want to on, on Halloween, I mean, we can we can really claim that our historical forebearers are broader than merely the people who we might, you know, check one box, you know, alongside. I think there are, there are a lot of different ways in which our political affinities and, you know, subject positions can be... I don't think this, the the mere fact of race should be that which limits us to how we think about our legacy, traditions, right. and heritage.
0: I think that's true. And, and I also think now that we're talking about this and I've put this out into the air, mm-hmm. um, I think part of what I'm feeling is precisely where we began our discussion, which is something is being exposed and revealed as being powerful and not admirable. And it's something that everyone, including me, has not necessarily reckoned with before. And so as a white woman, I suppose some of what I'm feeling is just recognition Mm. of a past that maybe I hadn't fully recognized before.